Section 3 of Character. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Character by Samuel Smiles. Chapter 1, Part C Influence of Character. Energy of will, self originating force, is the soul of every great character. Where it is, there is life. Where it is not, there is faintness, helplessness, and despondency. The strong man and the waterfall, says the proverb, channel their own path. The energetic leader of noble spirit not only wins a way for himself, but carries others with him. His every act has a personal significance, indicating vigor, independence, and self-reliance, and unconsciously commands respect, admiration, and homage. Such intrepidity of character characterize Luther, Cromwell, Washington, Pitt, Wellington, and all great leaders of men. I am convinced, said Mr. Gladstone, in describing the qualities of the late Lord Palmerston in the House of Commons shortly after his death, I am convinced that it was the force of will, a sense of duty, and a determination not to give in that enabled him to make himself a model for all of us who yet remain and follow him with feeble and unequal steps in the discharge of our duties it was that force of will that in point of fact did not so much struggle against the infirmities of old age but actually repelled them and kept them at a distance and one other quality there is at least that may be noticed without the smallest risk of stirring in any breast a painful emotion it is this that lord palmerston had a nature incapable of enduring anger or any sentiment of wrath this freedom from wrathful sentiment was not the result of painful effort but the spontaneous fruit of the mind it was a noble gift of his original nature a gift which beyond all others it was delightful to observe delightful also to remember in connection with him who has left us and with whom we have no longer to do except in endeavouring to profit by his example wherever it can lead us in the path of duty and of right and of bestowing on him those tributes of admiration and affection which he deserves at our hands the great leader attracts himself men of kindred character drawing them towards him as the lodestone draws iron thus sir john moore early distinguished the three brothers napier from the crowd of officers by whom he was surrounded and they on their part repaid him by their passionate admiration they were captivated by his courtesy his bravery and his lofty disinterestedness and he became the model whom they resolved to imitate and if possible to emulate moore's influence says the biographer of sir william napier had a signal effect in forming and maturing their characters and it is no small glory to have been the hero of those three men while his early discovery of their mental and moral qualities is a proof of moore's own penetration and judgment of character there is a contagiousness in every example of energetic conduct the brave man is an inspiration to the weak and compels them as it were to follow him thus napier relates that at the combat of vera when the spanish centre was broken and in flight a young officer named havelock sprang forward and waving his hat called upon the spaniards within sight to follow him putting spurs to his horse he leapt the abatis which protected the french front and went headlong against them the spaniards were electrified in a moment they dashed after him cheering el chico blanco 
and with one shock they broke through the French and sent them flying downhill. And so it is in ordinary life. The good and the great draw others after them. They lighten and lift up all who are within reach of their influence. They are as so many living centers of beneficent activity. Let a man of energetic and upright character be appointed to a position of trust and authority, and all who serve under him become, as it were, conscious of an increase of power. When Chatham was appointed minister, his personal influence was at once felt through all the ramifications of office. Every sailor who served under Nelson and knew he was in command shared the inspiration of the hero. When Washington consented to act as commander-in-chief, it was felt as if the strength of the American forces had been more than doubled. Many years late, in 1798, when Washington, grown old, had withdrawn from public life and was living in retirement at Mount Vernon, and when it seemed probable that France would declare war against the United States, President Adams wrote to him, saying, We must have your name, if you will permit us to use it. There will be more efficacy in it than in many an army. Such was the esteem in which the great president's noble character and eminent abilities were held by his countrymen. An incident is related by the historian of the Peninsular War, illustrative of the personal influence exercised by a great commander over his followers. The British army lay at Saururin, before which Salt was advancing, prepared to attack in force. Wellington was absent, and his arrival was anxiously looked for. Suddenly, a single horseman was seen riding up the mountain alone. It was the Duke, about to join his troops. One of Campbell's Portuguese battalions first descried him, and raised a joyful cry. Then the shrill clamor, caught up by the next regiment, soon swelled as it ran along the line into that appalling shout which the British soldier is wont to give upon the edge of battle, and which no enemy ever heard unmoved. Suddenly he stopped at a conspicuous point, for he desired both armies should know he was there, and a double spy who was present pointed out Salt, who was so near that his features could be distinguished. Attentively Wellington fixed his eyes on that formidable man, and, as if speaking to himself, he said, Yonder is a great commander, but he is cautious, and will delay his attack to ascertain the cause of those cheers. That will give time for the sixth division to arrive, and I shall beat him, which he did. In some cases, personal character acts by a kind of talismanic influence, as if certain men were the organs of a sort of supernatural force. If I but stamp on the ground in Italy, said Pompey, an army will appear. At the voice of Peter the Hermit, as described by the historian, Europe arose and precipitated itself upon Asia. It was said of the Caliph Omar that his walking stick struck more terror into those who saw it than another man's sword. The very names of some men are like the sound of a trumpet. When the Douglas lay mortally wounded on the field of Otterburn, he ordered his name to be shouted still louder than before, saying there was a tradition in his family that a dead Douglas should win a battle. His followers, inspired by the sound, gathered fresh courage, rallied, and conquered. And thus, in the words of the Scottish poet, The Douglas dead, his name hath won the field. There have been some men whose greatest conquests have been achieved after they themselves were dead. Never, says Michelet, 
Was Caesar more alive, more powerful, more terrible than when his old and worn-out body, his withered corpse, lay pierced with blows? He appeared then purified, redeemed, that which he had been, despite his many stains, the man of humanity. Never did the great character of William of Orange, surnamed the Silent, exercise greater power over his countrymen than after his assassination at Delft by the emissary of the Jesuits. On the very day of his murder, the estates of Holland resolved to maintain the good cause with God's help to the uttermost without sparing gold or blood, and they kept their word. The same illustration applies to all history and morals. The career of a great man remains an enduring monument of human energy. The man dies and disappears, but his thoughts and acts survive, and leave an indelible stamp upon his race. And thus the spirit of his life is prolonged and perpetuated, molding the thought and will, and thereby contributing to form the character of the future. It is the men that advance in the highest and best directions who are the true beacons of human progress. They are as lights set upon a hill, illumining the moral atmosphere around them, and the light of their spirit continues to shine upon all succeeding generations. It is natural to admire and revere really great men. They hallow the nation to which they belong, and lift up not only all who live in their time, but those who live after them. Their great example becomes the common heritage of their race, and their great deeds and great thoughts are the most glorious of legacies to mankind. They connect the present with the past, and help on the increasing purpose of the future, holding aloft the standard of principle, maintaining the dignity of human character, and filling the mind with traditions and instincts of all that is most worthy and noble in life. Character embodied in thought and deed is of the nature of immortality. The solitary thought of a great thinker will dwell in the minds of men for centuries until at length it works itself into their daily life and practice. It lives on through the ages, speaking as a voice from the dead, and influencing minds living thousands of years apart. Thus Moses and David and Solomon, Plato and Socrates and Xenophon, Seneca and Cicero and Epictetus, still speak to us as from their tombs. They still arrest the attention and exercise an influence upon character, though their thoughts be conveyed in languages unspoken by them and in their time unknown. Theodore Parker has said that a single man like Socrates was worth more to a country than many such states as South Carolina, that if that state went out of the world today, she would not have done so much for the world as Socrates. Great workers and great thinkers are the true makers of history, which is but continuous humanity influenced by men of character, by great leaders, kings, priests, philosophers, statesmen, and patriots, the true aristocracy of man. Indeed, Mr. Carlyle has broadly stated that universal history is, at bottom, but the history of great men. They certainly mark and designate the epochs of national life. Their influence is active, as well as reactive. Their mind is, in a measure, the product of their age. The public mind is also, to a great extent, their creation. Their individual action identifies the cause, the institution. They think great thoughts, cast them abroad, and the thoughts make events. Thus the early reformers initiated the Reformation, and with it the liberation of modern thought. Emerson has said that every institution is to be regarded as but the lengthened shadow of some great man. 
as Islamism of Muhammad, Puritanism of Calvin, Jesuitism of Loyola, Quakerism of Fox, Methodism of Wesley, Abolitionism of Clarkson. End of section 3